0: Hi guys and welcome to another episode of Radcast. Radiology is renowned for being at the cutting edge of medicine and interventional oncology definitely fits that bill. But one thing that radiologists and especially interventional radiologists are less well known for is research. So we're fortunate to be joined by Dr. Jim Zong who's an academic interventional radiologist subspecializing in interventional oncology who can talk about the intersection of both.
1: So yeah, thanks for joining us, Jim, and shout out to Diana, who was one of our application course candidates for hooking this one up. You have her to thank for this ordeal. Um, Can you just introduce yourself to the listeners?
2: Yes, of course. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great honour to be here. So my name is Jim, and I'm a trainee based in Leeds. I'm currently coming to the end of a three-year research PhD, which has been funded by Cancer Research UK and i came out of training as an st5 radiology registrar so when i go back i still have a bit of training left and my clinical interests were interventional radiology but more specifically interventional oncology which is more focused towards the treatment of cancer related problems and that's where i hope to be you know after i finish my research and integrate some of the research skills I've learned into practicing as a, an IR focusing on cancer. Brilliant, nice little intro there.
1: Um, so the vast majority of our listeners will know about interventional radiology, um, but some of them may be less well aware of interventional oncology. So can you give us a brief
2: background about the fields? Absolutely. So interventional oncology is a subspecialty field within IR and it focuses on the diagnosis and the treatment of cancer and cancer related problems using the techniques we learn as interventionalists with minimally invasive procedures that we perform with image guidance. And it includes how I would split it up into curative and palliative treatments. Curative treatments are things that um, can destroy tumours either through percutaneous procedures such as tumour ablation which is a procedure where you insert probes and the image guidance directly into tumors, for example, in the lung, the liver, the kidney, and you can burn these tumors or freeze these tumors. There are also newer technologies now that also kill the tumors through other means. Uh, You can also deliver treatment through the arterial system, through embolization procedures, uh, for example, to the liver as well, and this can also be potentially a curative treatment or a bridge to a curative treatment, such as liver transplantation. And the other big repertoire of interventional oncology procedures would be those that we can still offer value and improve quality of life or improve patient symptoms who may have cancer. For example, patients who have cancer may have really intractable pain and beyond. A lot of opioids, and you can actually provide them with relief through nerve blocks or through the ablation of certain uh, nerve supplies to the areas that they may have this pain to cause some symptom relief as well. Uh, there are lots of drainage procedures you can do as Irs, for example, with biliary obstruction, you can provide some relief uh, through drainage in that means and also if you have malignant ureteric obstruction of the kidneys and the ureters again we can provide some palliation by providing relief of that obstruction so that's a rough area of Mm. the types of io procedures And, and there's constantly new devices you know being available where you can you know ablate through certain parts of the body or through certain systems like the biliary system just to offer more uh, more treatment locally in that uh, setting of malignant obstruction of certain structures.
0: Why? Why did you choose interventional oncology over the more traditional vascular intervention?
2: Yeah, I I think I got into uh, radiology uh, initially with the mindset I was really interested in sort of cancer therapy. I at the end of medical school, I didn't know what radiology was. I didn't know what IR was, as probably Standard. you know yeah. most. Most people, I'm sure, it's been echoed in previous Radcast um, interviewees as well. But I, I trained in in Edinburgh, and it, it wasn't a big component of the um, undergraduate curriculum. The specialties which I had considered were uh, vascular surgery and urology. And urology, obviously, there's a big uh, you know cancer uh, area within um, the sort of, you know renal cancer and nephrectomy and offering robotic surgery and it wasn't until I spent some time uh, on my elective which was at Columbia Medical Center in New York where unfortunately I didn't get at the time any of my surgical um, sub-eyes which were the observerships that you have to apply for. I think I got my 19th choice which happened to be interventional radiology. I mean I'm surprised (laughs) that there was no one wanting to do interventional radiology because it's now one of the most competitive Residency programs, but anyway, yeah. I was fortunate. You had a and- curve, yeah, <laughs> maybe, or, or they maybe were dropped out or took pity on me. Who knows? <laughs> um, so they had me for a month, and obviously, they're probably disappointed because I knew nothing about the specialty. And usually, they get people who are highly motivated and obviously are applying for residencies and need to be on you know, very good behavior because they need a reference letter. But I I rocked up to their disappointment and they were very kind and and got me to be involved with some of the procedures in the laboratory, holding things, which obviously as a student, once you get stuck in, you get really enthused. And one of the treatments that I was involved with was a procedure called radioembolization. It's also known as selective internal radiation therapy. So this is... mm. Yeah, exactly. And this is a procedure that can be used to treat liver tumours and it delivers radioactive microscopic beads. So the interventional radiologist performs this procedure. You get access to the liver where the tumour is located and you deliver this radioactive bead. So it's a high dose of radiation to a specific organ. You you then don't get the systemic effects of the, mm. the radiation beads. You plan it very uh, stringently, so you don't get non-target embolization. Well, that's certainly the the aim of it. And it's like a bit like brachytherapy, which is an oncological technique where you deliver high dose radiotherapy to an area. And this was really novel at the time, because a lot of these patients with extensive liver tumors were not suitable for surgery. And really, they had no or very few treatment options apart from systemic chemotherapy. And that was going to cause them a lot of uh, side effects. And, you know, mm-hmm. you can be really unwell with systemic chemotherapy. But these patients could be bridged potentially with this uh, procedure to getting to the point where they might actually be able to get liver transplant and a curative procedure. Mm-hmm. And this is really a new area for me that you could do these sorts of therapies. And that was the first time I got really interested. And in, uh, when I then got into interventional radiology and also you know radiology, I think that's where I wanted to get more exposure to sorry for the long-winded story no it's good we like yeah, it not like at diff.
1: all um how does um how does uh compare to like taste because uh, that's also done for liver tumors done for hccs isn't it um and it's a palliative procedure as well and um, this is sort of a similar efficacy
2: yes absolutely and in the uk we historically have done a lot more taste um you can do taste in the setting of hcc where HCC is maybe too large or too extensive and is unresectable. So it is a palliative procedure, but then you can potentially reduce the size of these, of these lesions to the point where it may be surgically then resectable. And, um, historically again, cert when it was more widely practiced in the UK, perhaps five to 10 years ago, it was only within a trial in a, in a randomized controlled trial being run nationally. So the UK, experience of cert has been less compared to our north Mm. american colleagues where Mm. cert has been extensively practiced in the last 10 years but um, in the last few years it has now been approved for treating hcc by nice so we will Mm. see now an increased use of cert and it is integrated into international um, liver guidelines now and as we can generate more level one evidence to show its efficacy because that is one of the I guess the limitations of a lot of IR therapies, the background to support its use compared mm. to other standard of care treatments. Obviously in the cancer setting, there are so many competing treatments a lot of the time mm. and every type of clinician would put a good argument up to advocate for their treatment options, whether it's radiotherapy or you know systemic chemotherapy or immunotherapy agents, which increasingly are at the forefront of a lot of, you know, cancer trials, mm. um, but the, the efficacy in a lot of the multi-center prospective studies has shown a really great result for CERT in terms of the treatment of the primary tumors, which is the original target, but also mm. the opportunity to treat very large areas of the tumor and the liver, even right. very large tumors you can treat effectively. Mm and there's a type of so called radiation segmentectomy which is almost akin to trying to do a like a partial hepatectomy you're effectively <laughs> embolizing you know a very large segment of the liver to the point where you're you know effectively making it non functional that wow. part of of the liver but instead of causing so much toxicity to the background normal liver obviously that can still preserved to some degree with more targeted um, embolotherapies. And TACE has had its own issues because TACE you can do with different types of um, embolic agents. You can just simply block off the blood supply using embolic agents without um, any chemotherapy, so just a transarterial embolization. The chemotherapy Mm -hmm. component is then either adding in some chemotherapy that's basically lumped in with the embolic agent or you can actually deliver some beads which already have the chemotherapy agent laced onto them so that's called taste, so it's a drug eluting bead effectively mm. but you know it's very exciting when this all came out and there are even more uh, embolic agents now but when this came out it's very exciting because everyone thought wow obviously you want to put on put onto the, these beads like the most effective chemotherapy agent but like, for one thing the chemotherapy agents are always changing so it becomes hard you spend a lot of time maybe binding them together and then you realize this is a, this isn't actually the best treatment option this mm-hmm. isn't the best chemotherapy agent and unsurprisingly over the years the level one evidence and the prospective research studies haven't shown clear benefit of a lot of the more novel approaches to doing tastes. and this right. again i think just goes to show that i think the the approach to some uh, trials and some uh, of the research component to the practices that we do uh, needs to be a bit more ingrained so we can factor this mm. in when we are you know starting out doing these procedures so that we are collecting the data rather than waiting a whole period of time assuming that it will be beneficial and then we go back and look and then it hasn't actually mm. been you know yeah. beneficial for the patient you're currently just making it up as you go along, basically. Basically. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, so a point that someone wants made to me is that, unlike in vascular IR, where you almost have to contend with vascular surgeons nowadays, it's only really radiologists that do interventional oncology, so you don't have that same sort of turf war. Do you think that's a legitimate point,
2: or is it perhaps overplayed? Yeah, I think that the potential for turf wars plagues all areas of IR to some degree because in the oncological setting, you are in the MDTs with surgeons, with oncologists, medical and clinical oncologists who can provide chemotherapy and radiation therapies. For example, for tumour ablation, when we discuss patients who have uh, lung tumours that we can treat, there'll be surgeons who will say, I can resect this and then there'll be people who provide radiotherapy, particularly now with more novel radiotherapy techniques, where you can deliver more precisely, very high dose radiation. A, a procedure called stereotactic ablative radiotherapy. The radiation oncologist will say, "I can ablate that," and you know, it's it's the non-invasive t- treatment. Mm. I don't even need to stick a needle in it. And then the <laughs> IR will go, "Oh my God! Well, you guys go for it then, because um, well, that's common." No, um, but you know, joke. Besides, you, you know, we we could easily also argue. Well, we can put one probe into this. It's going to be very minimally invasive, so it trumps the the surgical option potentially. And mm-hmm. the location of the tumor may also mean that we can quite accurately target a more central uh, lung tumor because we can use CT to guide us in. Whereas for the surgeons, they rely on feeling, knowing where roughly the lesion is, and feeling like a lump on the the lung itself, then they might have to collapse the lung down, feel for the tumour, and then chop out a much larger chunk of the lung. And that includes normal tissue. Whereas we can just, you know, spare a bit more lung, um, and there's mm-hmm. no radiation toxicity and long-term radiation effects to the lung and also mm-hmm. to the surrounding structures, you know, like radiation toxicity to the heart. So there is still an argument for IR um in, in these settings. But it's it's how you make it. And although the turf wars are potentially there, actually for me working in that environment you learn so much because the oncologists are always so good at keeping up with the literature because they mm. have to provide that to the patient and also justify that to other colleagues about which perhaps drugs they should be on or which treatments they should be on because they every time they have a new drug or um you know a chemotherapy ready therapy regime out they're so good at designing trials so that they're accruing evidence as patients are initially being on these treatments so they're much better from the research side than you know radiology and ir is currently and Mm. to some degree surgery as well so we need to keep up that evidence base as well to remain competitive so that we don't get beaten in the turf wars i think so they can whip out the figures whereas you're like just trust me (laughs) honestly it's um maybe a bit more like oh trust me i've done 10 of these and everyone's (laughs) had a good result but i probably haven't actually looked at my own practice data (laughs) but i'm sure it'll work
1: yeah so um do most interventionalists dabble in a bit of io and vascular stuff or is it sort of an either or
2: i would say most irs will definitely dabble because it's not a black and white area with io and ir there's so much overlap and the the skill sets you learn as an as an IR are applicable, you know, ultrasound guide and access into any visceral system, um, arterial access, and also using different modalities like CT to do cross sectional intervention, that's all really useful for procedures like um you know tumor ablation and getting needles into locations that you need accurately. So if even if you were working in a in a centre that wasn't a cancer setting, you would encounter patients who have, who have pelvic cancers who come in with ureteric obstruction who need a nephrostomy, and you can argue that nephrostomy in the setting for cancer is an IO procedure, and IO procedures mm-hmm. include drainages, biopsies. These are all part and parcel of being an you know interventional oncologist. So it may be that you don't work in a place that offers other procedures like tumour ablation or some of the um, embolic therapies or the more novel procedures coming through, but uh, very much you can still perform IO in, in your centre. So it is highly mm. transferable.
0: And will most interventional oncologists
2: do regular IR on calls or do you manage to get out of that? Again, it's different centre to centre. So in leads, it's a split and the practice of IR is sort of split by non-vascular and vascular and the vascular irs provide the vascular intervention oncology procedures such as the embolotherapy treating liver um, treating the prostate and the non-vascular irs perform for example the tumor ablation and the bulk of the ureteric and biliary work and the on-call is a split on call so we have a consultant on for vascular ir who will be on for all the trauma Aortic peripheral vascular work, and we also have uh, non-vascular IR on for uh, drainages in the middle of the night nephrostomies. I know mm-hmm. in uh, many centres it will be one person on who could perform both the non-vascular and vascular IR, and I think the reason is just because the in some of the tertiary centres, the the people's day jobs will be very different, and so as I'm sure you've seen in your own practice, people are getting more and more subspecialized. It's like uh, I'm the radiologist of the right upper lobe. Um, (laughs) Things are are becoming more complex, aren't they? And AI at the moment is just making things even more challenging at times.
0: Yeah. I was actually, I was chatting to a guy who, um, he only does upper GI imaging. So he just does... barium uh, swallows. So he, he, he basically just just does imaging in esophageal or gastric malignancy i just find that so so specialist (laughs) i'd find it so
1: dull that that doesn't appeal to me at all
2: (laughs) and i hope for for ir some of our techniques are transferable but then it's tricky sometimes because if you predominantly work in in the vascular side and you hadn't done any you know ureteric or biliary work for a Mm. while I, i can see there is a bit of hesitancy because it's you're not going to get blood out, or well, hopefully anyway, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you don't want to see arterial pulsatile <laughs> blood flow, um, and it must be hard to maintain both the interventional skills, the confidence, but also the diagnostic skills you need before you do some of these procedures to review, mm. you know, your approach, because I think being a good diagnostic radiologist improves your ability to perform as a, you know, interventional radiologist. Yeah. Um, So we've touched on this in previous
0: episodes, but your average radiologist doesn't really do much research. And we particularly see this with our application course candidates. Um, If they're coming from specialties where research credentials, uh, where research is more important, such as cardiology or orthopedics, then they really do put us to shame. And my perception is that even more so uh, that's the case in IR. Um, in that you just kind of get on with the job and don't really worry about research quite as much.
2: Do you think that's a, a fair representation? Very, very fair, Jamie, I think. Um, <laughs> it saddens me, saddens me a bit. And I don't want to be kicked out of the college or anything for um, my comments. I need to be politically correct. No, no, no I, tell I, the I, truth. <laughs> I, um, it's really challenging because you have so much workload that you need to deliver on and we're so short of radiologists that absolutely we need to deliver on the service aspect because we are we need to keep the the country afloat you know with providing the (laughs) diagnostic service and it is a luxury to perhaps think at times that you need to be then training academics or have the luxury of having research time and not not to do this but it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation because unless you can show that your service offers patient benefit how are you ever going to expand your service or justify expanding that service and i think it needs to come from the point at which you find a potential applicant you know it needs to be reflected perhaps in the application and to value research in the candidates that you're trying to recruit from and you know the applications are constantly changing and recently they've become really detailed and extensive you have to do an assessment exam, you have to also do audits and reaudits. And no wonder people don't do research because it's just so hard to already do all the other things, let alone mm-hmm. trying to, you know, chase around uh, an academic and try and do a project in like a week, which is what everyone, you know, the week before the applications, everyone starts emailing going, can I please do a research project? I'm applying to radiology this year. Um, and then they all get forwarded to me and I go, oh, I'm really sorry. I think um, we need to sit down and have a chat about this. Yeah, we would have got a deluge this
1: year because they changed the sort of um, the, yeah. the points. So um, stuff that they would have got points for last year, some of the research they didn't get points for anymore. So yeah, there was a mad scramble. So I can imagine. Yeah, yeah.
2: yeah um, exactly. I think a lot of it is the exposure that students get to radiology and IR during med school. Because if you can get in early and show that this is an exciting field there's so much research and exciting work to be Mm -hmm. done consider us i think people will it will be that inception moment they will think about it and those people who traditionally have done cardiology neurosurgery other surgical specialties will go actually i mean maybe radiology and ir is an exciting Mm -hmm. developing field Mm -hmm. i'll consider i'll consider that um Mm. it's tricky though because you know they are overwhelmed with information, but you know perhaps mm. if you offer some student selected components or research projects for yeah medical students who have to do those things and you are giving them a radiology project, that's the first step for them to go actually, maybe I quite you know enjoy this because most people probably yeah. learn only in foundation right that they might want to do radiology and by then yeah. it's a self selective process. Mm. Uh, but having having said that, in University of Leeds, they run something in the first week of medical school for the the new students called Job Idol. And it's effectively that mm. X factor for all the <laughs> medical and surgical specialties. <laughs> and it's an interesting environment because uh, I, I have previously been peer pressured to do it because no one else would do it. This was a number of years ago pre- before COVID. And I remember what to There's, actually participate will be a job yeah it's uh, it's yeah you're in little uh, groups so like five specialty groups you have to make it out of your group and then you're into like the quarterfinals. but oh wow then you have like i think 30 seconds to a minute to sell your specialty um you know show some cases or tell them why it's great to train in but i think a lot of students come into medical school with preconceptions of medicine informed by media and they they already have an idea of maybe what they want to do obviously having no having not spent any time or in that specialty and so it's not an even playing field because as soon as yeah. you show scans or you tell them about catheter's and wise they look at you like you're some creep and <laughs> like who, where? which which corner of the hospital do you you know they don't really i think fully Go back see in the, the picture yeah yeah <laughs> But having said um, that, we have won We have what radiology has won it before. Um, oh wow! Nice, nice. Very proud. Um.
1: So, so I mean, you're currently doing um a PhD in prostate cancer intervention. So, can you maybe sell that to us? Um, make it sound really appealing.
2: Yeah. So, um, I I am doing a PhD in prostate cancer, but it really isn't a interventional oncology themed PhD, and we can go into you know why that is because a lot of research opportunities require external funding and it's very expensive to fund doctors to do research full time for 3 years because you know that grant covers your salary and your research costs but um, my, my phd is around using machine learning and ai approaches to personalize some radiotherapy treatments for prostate cancer and radiotherapy is a very effective treatment for prostate cancer and so we're interested in also setting up um, a trial to look at different radiotherapy approaches and the changes in the prostate at a very early point to try and detect both a recurrent prostate, but also detect toxicity symptoms. So we're looking at some data mining approaches of the MRI scans for these patients to mm-hmm. see if we can you know predict that using AI. Mm-hmm. And although it isn't a interventional radiology project I'd always thought that the AI and the clinical trials experience would be useful to then apply to you know future practice in IR because again we don't get much research training as you know in re- in radiology um, and particularly in, in IR so hopefully it would then be helpful but the funding aspect is a real issue because you know traditionally you need funding either from a research body such as NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, or a research council like the Medical Research Council or the Wellcome Trust or charities. So Cancer Research UK is one of the biggest charities and they Mm. fund me. But you need to either apply to these research bodies with a project and you factor in all the costs and costs for your supervisor's time and you You have to plan this years in advance, actually, to to Mm. work up these massive mammoth applications. And it's very competitive because you compete against all specialties. Or the other way is to um, devise projects. If you have a pot of money from a larger research grant, such as a big uh, radiotherapy network grant um, in the UK, which is what pays uh, my PhD. And these projects are designed by the principal investigators and the senior academics and then people apply to more specific projects and there is still mm. leeway to then adapt the project for the candidate doing it but then you have a rough idea when you apply of what you're going to do and i have had experience of both so i applied to the medical research council with a completely self-designed project and i applied wow. for this ciuk project which I knew already was in the area of prostate uh, radiotherapy and biomarkers Um, so I you know I have a bit of experience of both and it is it is challenging even the one with the project already you know half designed still competitive
1: so you're doing the CRUK one right yes that's right the one that you designed yourself was what was that
2: yeah so that was around looking at the immune response after performing tumor ablation And we were interested in in the kidney at the time, because we had done some research in Leeds led by Professor Ziwa, who's an academic interventional oncologist. And we knew that certain types of ablative modalities, so cryoablation, which is a cold based energy an ice ball effectively that you use to freeze tumours, caused a bigger immune response because we can measure that in the blood mm. um, and look at proteomics and immune markers, that response is greater with ice rather than if you burnt it. And we thought that was really interesting because we knew on the horizon what was coming was combined treatments with local ablated treatments, potentially combined with systemic immunotherapy agents with the hypothesis that if you can generate a bigger immune response locally, if you then give the patient systemic immunotherapy they're going to have a bigger systemic response as well if that makes sense Mm -hmm. and we realized the reason this was happening is because when you use a heat energy like microwave ablation you create a big heat cavity and you just burn everything within that cavity including all the proteins the antigens which are needed for your immune system to generate that response so you don't get as big a response because you already burnt all the antigens. But with yeah. cryoablation, you denature and you mechanically shear the cells, and you kill the tumour cells, but it preserves those antigens. So as soon as you've thawed the ice, you treated the tumour, those antigens are then released into your bloodstream. And that's why you generate an immune response. So the whole PhD was around how can we measure this and then utilise that, perhaps designing a clinical trial to combine ablation with uh immunotherapy. But obviously really never got to do that. Yeah. So someone else um, may get to do that. <laughs> that, was,
1: that was your passion project and, <laughs> and <you got laughs> postates instead. Next time oh, a medical exactly. student comes and asking said. For a project and you know what to get
0: <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs>
1: someone's gonna steal your project to get into
2: S T one radiology. Please do. I, I hope a listener out there steals my project and does that. Um, so do
0: you, do you do you intend to maintain an ongoing relationship with Cancer Research UK as you continue into your
2: career? Um, I, I definitely hope I don't get fallen out of favour or blacklisted. Um whether I am able to continue a relationship I think it depends on whether it aligns with, you know, your future goals. They are obviously a big supporter of cancer research. They have their own, you know, research areas that they, they want to fund and some of that is quite uh, translational and some of the translational science i are at the moment says so in the uk we are aren't really at the forefront of it. it's led by you know the oncologists but having said that they provide some um, post doc like post phd clinical academic training so they offer fellowships for clinicians who have done phd's to give them some money perhaps support some research time because you know as you know one of the limiting factors is just simply how much time you have you know you mm. you need time in your week for this if you want to you know remain in the game i think
1: so just to, to clarify you did so you did an academic clinical fellowship presumably um your radiology training was an was an academic one
2: yes but i did a non-traditional ACF because in Leeds the ACF is from ST3 rather than the bulk of them which is from your first year of training Mm. so my first three years were um, well my first two years were full clinical and from ST3 I had 25% in my training for research so I have you know maybe a block of research in the year so that's just how Leeds do their ACF Correct. Oh, yeah.
1: Okay. And then your PhD came after ST3 or
2: after ST5. So I applied for these PhD fellowships during my ST4 year at, or at the beginning of ST5 because you need roughly a year in advance to plan and submit mm. applications and interviews. And then I started my PhD effectively at the beginning of ST6. So I completed okay, ST 5 right. and then started my uh, PhD it was in the height of COVID at one point I didn't think I would be allowed to go out of program because we all thought you know (laughs) research was very low priority when you know we had the state of affairs but it thankfully worked out and I was able to go out program then the university didn't believe that I was a real student because I was starting at you know not their usual intake period and there's a whole rigmarole of you know, mm. that interface between clinical and the university setting, they don't really <laughs> <laughs> appreciate that. But we got we got there in the end.
1: NHS
0: meets uni admin.
2: Uh, oh, God. oh uh, yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah. Can only yeah. imagine?
0: So many layers um, yeah. of bureaucracy. <laughs> <laughs> they don't mesh at all. <laughs> no.
1: no. And, um, so so is it is that a normal time frame? You, people would usually finish their training or get towards the end and then do a PhD or do people do it a bit earlier?
2: I think most people do it a bit earlier. And if you have done an ACF from ST1, then there's an opportunity to do that PhD in the first half of your training. Okay. I think the advantage of that is that when you come back, you, your clinical training is undisturbed, and you can really manage that efficiently. And, you know, your learning curve will be maximize as a result whereas for me obviously coming out so late and particularly doing ir where i need to be in the lab doing the cases to get that confidence and skill set up it is a tricky period to manage Mm. time out and then to go back with limited training time left so i'm conscious that i may need more training maybe in the form of a fellowship or other things to to skill up but having Mm. said that surgeons oncologists I'd know people who have done their PhDs after they've CTT'd, but without having started a consultant job. So it is mm-hmm. doable, and you can maintain your skills during your PhD with some clinical sessions. Um, yeah. so there are ways to, to do that.
1: So you're currently a full-time researcher. Can you maybe talk us through like your your average week? Um, you're currently speaking to us from Toronto, aren't you? And you were in Sweden a few weeks ago, so you seem to do a lot of jet setting. <laughs> I don't know. That's just the academic uh, life. I really you. hope
2: my PhD supervisors aren't listening. Are they to meant this to know? <laughs> oh, God, I, I promise. Know. Uh, I promise. No, they they do know, there, and they're very okay. supportive of um <laughs> of you know the, your professional development. You know, attending <laughs> conferences. Um, of course. But uh, yeah, they. These conferences, it just so happens I have had a, a series of them. And it's funny right, because yeah. I'm at that stage in my PhD where I'm writing my thesis. So it, it is crunch time. You sort of go, mm. oh, God, what have I achieved in you know, this length of time? And mm. it, 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 time is definitely racing at the moment. But mm-hmm. Stockholm was um, ECIO, which is a European interventional oncology meeting, which is excellent. And it's the sort of seminal I.O. meeting that I would encourage any trainee thinking about io to try and go to they offer some support as well to trainees financially and we also have I O U K, which is a uk interventional oncology interest group um which their conference is also towards the end of this month in southampton so anyone in the south mm-hmm. definitely try to go to that i'm in toronto just so happens because i'm here for a radiation oncology meeting so it's not even a specific I.O. meeting I'm here so I'm presenting mm. some work from my PhD and um, I've been on a course which trains people in research skill sets who work in radiation oncology which I have been involved with and I would encourage people who even aren't sure about research to go to these meetings because it's quite a good way to learn people will give really comprehensive talks on an area that you might be interested in like an, an area of intervention that you might find fascinating and you'll learn a lot about the evidence base and also the future and then that might enthuse you to go out and perhaps do a research project and hopefully that doesn't put you off too much.
1: <laughs> is it easier being maybe easier is the wrong word is your work-life balance better as an academic
2: or when you're a trainee? Oh that is really tricky right now I sometimes think gosh if I wasn't doing academic plus clinical and i just did one it would be much easier mm-hmm. but i think i'm in a really busy period and you will you will find periods prior to grant submission abstract deadlines busier mm-hmm. but overall being a, like a clinical academic with a research component does give you a lot of flexibility you know you're as a trainee you're to some degree tied to the rotor you know you have to plan your leave around on calls or you have to stop on calls logistically it's tricky but in research world in the last you know almost three years you can plan out your day and you know go and fix your car or get your haircut or go to the <laughs> post office although who goes to post office now but you can do all those things and get all the stuff you need to done because you can work around you know mm. those other life or daily events and you can work on the fly you can work you know from abroad as long as you have your laptop and you're writing and you're reading you can get all those things done i mean my typical day is really quite variable because i might be in the hospital working or i might be at home you know doing some python programming if i'm trying to work mm. on some ai modeling because actually with those things particularly because i'm the most incompetent <laughs> coder out there you really just need a good headspace and physical space i think to get into it i wouldn't mm. be able to do those things you know on the fly unfortunately yeah but... yeah in between scans on call, <laughs> oh gosh yeah barely breathe <laughs> go to the toilet
1: so um when you um finish your phd what sort of um consultant job would you um what sort of yeah path do you intend to go down will you try and have an academic sort of interest in your in your consultant job
2: yeah so my my immediate goals are to finish training get my cct and then in the ideal world with a dream job it would be a job where i can practice as an ir and be involved with io but have you know, a day or two a week to still keep an interest and keep involved in research, conscious that it it does take time for you to, you know, write grants, write papers. Um, But then alongside that, you can then start to also mentor junior trainees, medical students coming through, and you're sort of training the next generation, your future Mm -hmm. colleagues in research, which I think is also really important and what A lot of other specialties are really great at doing. They train the future and they inspire the future. But then those people are inspired to work with you and to come back Mm -hmm. and to be really motivated. And those are exactly the people you want to train and you want as colleagues in the future. So it would be nice to have some academic time to be able to to do that. And hopefully if I'm doing IO, then it would be complementary, you know, with Mm -hmm. the clinical work that I'm doing as well are
1: those jobs easy to come by? <laughs>
2: no, I don't think so. Um, and I think it, it is changing because IO is such a comparatively small field. It's a small field within radiology because it's such a niche radiology, let alone in the bigger cancer mm-hmm. setting. And the only way to expand is to show that we have value and we need to not have the, again, I might, really get blacklisted for using these words we need to not be a have like like a technician mindset like oh this case has come in we've done the case but yeah 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 we need to be a clinician in the patient's journey right we need to actually meet the patient before they even come for some of these procedures and tell them about why this procedure may help them but also make them aware of other competing procedures and you get lots of patients who are very informed and they have read around this and they might actually find you because they've read you can do tumor Mm -hmm. ablation so why do you need to chop this whole organ out to get rid of my tumor Um, Mm. and so it may be that actually the internet and patients being more well informed might help us Mm -hmm. and if you can actually educate the public about what ir and io is that will help the specialty, you know, expand as well. But we need to show evidence, we need to make the evidence. And then we can then expand because we need more people to deliver these procedures. So that will take Mm -hmm. a bit of time.
0: So for, for any of our listeners that might be interested in pursuing interventional oncology, what advice could you give them?
2: So I think it's really important to get good IR training. So you have confidence and competence in the basic image guided Treatment techniques, because then everything else comes after that. You can go into the more complicated or you know the more high end or novel procedures because it is using the same principles Mm. to get then the I O exposure. There are opportunities to do that within your training as a out of program experience short placement perhaps in a cancer center near you or a full fully fledged you know one year or two year fellowship which you can look at in the UK in many of the oncology centers so the places I think of off the top of my head that offer these are the Christie Hospital in Manchester they're at Royal Marsden in London and in Surrey and those are excellent places to get a more focused IO training and also look abroad places like Canada, they do a lot more IO there. The typical IR does a lot more IO because the typical IR doesn't do perhaps as much aortic and peripheral vascular work. Mm. So they have to supplement their, you know, job plan with other things. And so IO and non is what they end up doing more of and, you know, Canada and Australia also places to go and get a bit more experience of those things, but, um, it's hard initially to go well how am i you know getting going to get into such a niche area but mm-hmm. if you get trained as an ir and you can do all the bog standard things you will be able to do the io stuff so that if that's right. something then you want to develop as a consultant even that's possible there are consultants who set up io practices as a consultant and learn that
1: mm-hmm. so would you be say someone who's um A foundation doctor is not even in radiology yet would you maybe be um, saying they should pick training schemes specifically based on whether they have a significant IO presence or is it something you can pick up after training if you do a fellowship like it's not the end of the world if you don't train somewhere where there's a lot of IO
2: that's right it's not it's not the end of the world I think we have loads of uk opportunities for people to get that experience Mm -hmm. you know later on in their training people even move for their ir training sometimes to go to a center where they realize they want to do a bit more liver or or oncology or trauma intervention Um, i think if you're picking a place pending you're not tied down to a specific location being in a big center is just good for your overall radiology experience right because you get to see more cases and potentially get more stuck in with the the actual i r side of things, so your mm. your confidence will be better when you finish your training because you'll have just simply done more so I would say center is important to get that exposure.
1: You sometimes get conflicting messages about that though some people say it's better to train in a smaller center because then you'll get more sort of hands on training experience where you might be forgotten about in a in a large center,
2: yeah, and I think that's where for a lot of training schemes, you do get to rotate round. The district generals and the Mm. um, tertiary centers and you know definitely when you start your own cause at tertiary center you very much feel well I very much felt like was being thrown in the deep end and Mm. having not done ultrasound for months I'm now doing it all out of hours and I'm like the expert opinion on it you know it's scary (laughs) yeah yeah um and you're 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 right because in the tertiary centers people can be so busy and bogged down with lots of other things that the training and the supervision component might at times be affected. Whereas in a DGH, people have more time, but Mm -hmm. the case mix and the case volume is different. And I do think still you need some time in a big center, even if it's just as a rotation as part of your training to Mm -hmm. get the volume in that Mm -hmm. area, perhaps that you're interested in. Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Um, so, I mean, I think that's us done then. Um, Thanks again, Jim, for taking the time to speak to us. Um, it's been a really unique insight and um, hopefully our listeners have found that enlightening and maybe some of them will be inspired to follow in your
2: footsteps. Thank you very much. And yeah, I'm more than happy to speak to anyone who is interested in IO. We, we need you. <laughs>
0: Thanks for listening, guys. We'll be back next month with another episode. In the meantime, you can catch all of our previous episodes on the usual podcast platforms and at anchor.fm forward slash Radcast. And for more updates, check out our social media channels. So that's Radcast Academy on Twitter and Instagram. Bye. Goodbye.